we're in the middle of a sermon series, teaching series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, if you are using a pew Bible, you can turn in that to page 975, 975, that's where we're at tonight. Um, Galatians is one of the letters in the New Testament right after 2 Corinthians, right before Ephesians. Tonight we're looking at chapter 5, just a couple of verses, verses 13 through 16. Galatians 5, 13 through 16. So let me read this for us, uh, understanding that these aren't my words, these are God's words, and let's give it our attention and then see what God has for us. So here from God's word for you tonight, dear friends, Paul writes, beginning in chapter 5, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's ask the Spirit to help us understand this rightly. Father, we do pray again that you would come and work as you have promised to do, and as you always have done. Send your Spirit to illumine our minds, help us to have an understanding of this passage that causes us not just to hear one thing and have it go directly out the other ear and not make any difference, but cause us rather to be changed by this text, by what you mean to say and teach us tonight, not just intellectually changed, but changed in every part of our person. Help us to be different people who are more desirous of obeying you, who are more faithful to you, and who trust in Jesus and depend upon Jesus more and more each day. We ask that you would do these things, for only you can do them. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So this week I took a couple of airplane flights as I traveled to Texas for a meeting, and I had two really interesting experiences. Well, they were interesting to me, actually, as I reflected on them a little bit. And they, they were regarding uh, the flight attendants on the airplane. On the flight I took from... Tucson to Houston. Actually, I had to go to San Diego and then to Houston, which makes no sense. But the flight from San Diego to Houston, you know, the flight attendant speaking. And um, as she was speaking, I frankly wasn't paying much attention. And then I looked around and noticed really no one else is paying any attention to what this lady's saying at all. And I sort of realized, you know, she's a lot like a preacher. Um, <laughs> she's always saying the same message over and over and over again and trying to get people to listen, and it wasn't going so well. You're great. You're very attentive. You're not at all like people in an airplane. But I, I, seriously, I was thinking, you know, this, this message is not very sticky. Uh, it's not very easy to remember what she's saying, even though, in a, in a sense, it's, it's a life-and-death message. It's pretty important, you know? Uh, although I do think those flotation device things, I'm still skeptical that those would ever work. But, you know, I was thinking, I'm not sure. This lady's going to have to spice up her, her offering here in order to get people's attention. And, you know, I just kind of thought about that just in passing. I didn't really give it another thought until I was on the airplane back from, t from uh, Houston back to Albuquerque. Not San Diego this time, thankfully. And this second flight attendant delivering the exact same message, probably the FAA-regulated message, uh, spiced it up a good bit. Some of you may have had these experiences. I'm starting to see this more and more. I was on Southwest, and this flight attendant was hilarious. She said all sorts of sort of sarcastic comments sort of interspersed through the things that she had to say, and I am not kidding. By the end of her little announcement spiel, the entire plane was cracking up laughing. Everyone was engaged and connected to what she was after. Uh, and I was stunned 
I thought, wow, that is amazing. Basically the same information and the, the delivery is, is, is very different. She had a, a sticky message, something that you're going to remember. It's going to, to stick to your brain. The first person had, had a slippery message. It's like trying to hold on to the soap in the shower. You always tend to lose it. It's slippery. You can't remember it very well. The gospel's a lot like that. Second, not the second lady, uh, but the first lady. The gospel is, it tends, because of our sin and because of our flesh, to be, to be slippery. We tend to forget it. It tends to go through our fingers. Paul wrote this letter to these churches in Galatia to make a slippery message become more sticky. To help us to remember the gospel better and better and to live in light of the gospel more and more. And as we've been going through this letter together, we've seen him basically deliver the same message in all sorts of different ways. He's told personal stories. He's come close to, to berating the Galatians at time with some pretty strong language. He's used allegory. He's used pretty dense theological argumentation. He's done it all to make basically the same point. We'll talk about that point in a minute, but let me just remind you why Paul's writing this letter to begin with. He wrote this letter to a bunch of churches in South Turkey that he had planted a few years prior and had since left. And since he had left these young church plants, new teachers that the New Testament calls the Judaizers had come into these churches and had begun to teach something new, something different than what the apostle taught. They said basically this, it's great that you Galatians have believed in Jesus Christ in order for your sins to be forgiven, in order for you to be made right with God, in order for you to be a part of God's community. That's wonderful. Jesus is essential, but he's not what? Thank you. He's not sufficient. They said Jesus is essential, but he's not sufficient. On top of faith in Jesus, you also must do this. You must basically become culturally Jewish, hence their name, the Judaizers. You must get circumcised. You must observe Sabbath feasts and festivals. You must live like we live, we Jews live. And when you start doing that, when you start doing that, you can really be okay with God. You can really be a part of God's community. So Paul got wind of this new message And said, no way, Jose. That's not the way it's going to go down as long as I'm still standing in my church plants. And he wrote the letter to the Galatians as a response to this new teaching that was creeping up in the churches. And he says, the main point of the letter, that once you start changing the gospel, once you start messing with the gospel, once you start tinkering with the gospel, even if you think you're making the gospel better, you're destroying the gospel. A different gospel is no gospel, as he says in chapter 1, verse 6. And so he continues to make that point. That's the big point, again and again and again. Last time we met, we looked at the beginning of chapter 5, where Paul takes a, we called it a, a my way or the highway approach. He says, if you accept circumcision and all that comes with circumcision, if you think you must be circumcised to be okay with God, if that is required for your standing with God to be legitimate, then you lose Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 2. If you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. You have, you have fallen away from grace. And he used Very strong language there. He said, you've got to take what I gave you, my message, or you've got to go down the other path, but there's no in-between. And tonight, Paul's making a bit of a transition in his argument. 
Um, And throughout the New Testament, we really see that idea that I just summarized for you repeated over and over again. We see the writers of the Bible saying this, Jesus, through his death on the cross, has completely wiped your sin away. Your slate is clean. You're totally forgiven. You have renewed and restored relationship with God and renewed and restored relationship with one another. Jesus is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is not just essential. Jesus is sufficient. That's the gospel. But that brings up a question. And it's a question that Paul begins to address tonight. And it's particularly a question that people like the Judaizers and those who had been impacted by the Judaizers, that is, religious, moral, traditional, law-abiding people, would have asked. And here's the question. What then is the purpose of the law? If all these things that you've been teaching us, Paul, are true, that Jesus is all we need, that Obedience to the law in every single extent isn't possible and therefore isn't what we must do to be made right. If we don't have to get circumcised, if we don't have to follow all these old archaic mosaic rules, why does the law exist at all? That's the question Paul's going to begin to answer tonight and really, in a sense, answer throughout the rest of the letter to the Galatians. And so really briefly, that's the question that I want us to to consider. And so here's what I want to do um, as we think about that question. What are we going to do with the law? I want to just really quickly frame three possible answers to that question. Really, there's three ways to answer it. And then we're going to look at what Paul's answer is and see what he has to say in the text pretty quickly. We're already starting 10 minutes late, so you can't blame me if we end late tonight, okay? Um, So here's the three possible answers to that question. What are we to do with the law? Everybody have that question in mind? Given the gospel, given Jesus saves us, not obedience to the law, what is the purpose of the law? What is its function? Well, there's three ways, three ways to answer that very briefly. The first is the way of legalism. The way of legalism is what Paul has been combating throughout the letter of the Galatians. If you've been with us at all, then you've heard me preach about that again and again and again. The way of legalism basically says this, obedience to the law brings freedom. Obedience to the law brings freedom. And Paul has fought against that. We're not going to rehash that here. Uh, The second way, the first way then, the way of legalism. Second way, the way of license, which is the opposite extreme of the way of legalism, and it's what Paul starts fighting against tonight. So the way of legalism says, obedience to the law brings freedom. The way of license says, freedom brings disregard for the law. So Paul's fought against legalism, the way of legalism. Now he's going to fight against the way of license. This idea that freedom means I can do whatever I want. The law can be disregarded. And Paul offers us a third way. I'm going to call his way the way of love. And the way of love says this. Freedom brings obedience to the law. The way of legalism, obedience to the law brings freedom. Paul says, no, that's not true. The way of license... Freedom brings disregard for the law. That's not true. What's right, what's true, the proper way is the way of love. Freedom in Christ brings obedience. Obedience to God's law. So let's look a little bit more tonight at that third way. And particularly as Paul begins to fight against this idea of legalism and against this idea of of license. He's basically arguing that Christian freedom, the freedom we have in the, in the gospel, the freedom Jesus has brought us, is not, listen, if you, if you listen to anything, listen to this. Christian freedom is not freedom to do whatever we want. 
It's not freedom from all constraints. It is freedom to serve. It's freedom to love. And that's very important for Christian living. And in a sense, that's the whole point that Paul's getting at tonight. And the way he does that in our text is by telling us three things that Christian freedom is not. Remember last week, chapter 5, verse 1, he uses the word there, freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free. And he talked a lot about freedom last week. And so tonight, beginning in verse 13, he's going to qualify it with three things that freedom does not lead to. Three things freedom is not. And here's what they are. Freedom is not freedom. Christian freedom is not freedom to indulge the flesh. It's not freedom to exploit your neighbor. And it's not freedom to ignore the law. So that's where we're headed, okay? There's an outline on the back of your bulletin. You're welcome to make use of that as you want. So each of these points in pretty quick succession. So let's dive in. Look at verse 13. First, we see here, freedom, Christian freedom, is not freedom to indulge the flesh. Verse 13, Paul says, You were called to freedom through Jesus. God, by His saving grace, in His sovereign work, has called you to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only, here's the qualifier, don't use that freedom as an opportunity. That word opportunity, by the time Paul uses it here, has become a military technical term in the Greek language. It's the word that's used in other texts for a vantage point or, or for the high ground in a battle. Now, you know, uh, Nate and I and Ainsley sometimes at the park play pirates or whatever like, like that, and, and, and I chase them. I'm the pirate, and they're, I'm always the pirate, by the way. Um, my R is getting pretty good. They're always the good guys, and they go up the hill at the park because Nate and Ainsley already, as three- and two-year-olds, sort of instinctively know that you want the high ground. You can see what's going on. It's harder to get up there. It's a good vantage point. It's a good opportunity. That's the word Paul uses here. He says, don't use your freedom in Christ as a vantage point, as high ground, as an opportunity for what? The flesh. Now, Pastor Phil talked about that word this morning. Ah, I meant to ask you that quote. He gave a great quote about what that word means, something about a traitor. I'm not going to repeat it because I'll just butcher it. Basically, what flesh means, listen to Phil's sermon on the web. There's some good stuff in there on flesh. But when Paul says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he's saying there that uh, don't use, don't allow your freedom to turn into a vantage point or high ground for, for your fleshly desires. In other words, the flesh in the New Testament is almost always... Um, Anything in our humanity that's opposed to God. Anything about us as whole persons that still is, is resistant to faith in Christ, to obedience to God. Uh, so you see here then how Paul at the very outset is arguing that Christian freedom, listen, true Christian freedom is not freedom from the law. It's freedom unto the law. It's not freedom from any moral constraints. It's not freedom from railways that help us live rightly. It's freedom unto those things. He's saying don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to do whatever you want to satiate any desire you have. If that's what you're doing, you're misusing your freedom and you don't really get the gospel. So here's an important question to ask yourself at this point. Do I really understand the gospel? 
do I really get all these things Paul has been saying in this letter? And if I do, how do I know? How can I gauge my understanding of the gospel? Well, what we've been seeing throughout the letter so far is this. You get the gospel, it's working, so to speak, in your heart when you stop trying to manufacture your own righteousness. We've talked about that a lot. You stop trying to live in some sort of functional righteousness that you create other than the righteousness of Jesus. That's one way you know you get the gospel when you're stopping over time doing that. Here's another way. You know you get the gospel not just when you stop manufacturing your own righteousness, but when you stop misusing the law. And so let me ask you, and let me ask myself as I make an effort here to sit under my own preaching and not be a hypocrite. How are you doing in your fight against sin? Are you indulging the flesh? Are you allowing the remnants of sin in your life, even if you're a Christian, to have the better vantage point, to gain the high ground? Or are you fighting sin in the power of the Spirit? That's a very, very important question to ask, I think. You see, it's important because, again, the gospel functioning well in your life means two things. Don't miss this. The gospel functioning well in your life means both, on the one hand, that, that you stop trying to please an angry God to earn his favor. When you get the gospel, you stop trying to please an angry God to earn his favor. I've got to do enough. But... On the other hand, when you get the gospel, you also don't stop trying to please a delighted God to enjoy his favor. You see, when you really get the gospel, when it's operative in a healthy way in your life, you don't try to kill all your sins so that God will finally accept you. That's what Paul's been saying again and again and again. You can never do that enough. But... When you get the gospel, on the other hand, you also do try to kill sin because God has already accepted you. You see that? So on the one hand, you stop trying to manufacture your own righteousness. You know when you're doing that, you're really starting to get the gospel. But on the other hand, you stop misusing the law. You stop indulging your flesh. You fight sin. You grow as a Christian. That's another sign you get the gospel. So Paul says, Christian freedom first is not freedom to indulge the flesh. Okay? Second, look with me. Verse 14. Christian freedom is also, it's not freedom to indulge the flesh. And secondly, it's not freedom to exploit my neighbor. He says here that true Christian freedom consists in this. Serving others. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 13. Instead of using it as an opportunity for the flesh, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying here then, that rather than using your freedom to sin, the person that's really getting the gospel uses his freedom to serve. Rather than using your freedom to exploit your neighbor, the one who gets the gospel uses his or her freedom to enrich his or her neighbor. Ironically, Paul says here that true freedom is found in, in slavery. Look at that word in verse 13. Through love, serve one another. That's the same word in the New Testament that's used for enslaved or to enslave or to be enslaved. 
He's saying, in a sense, true freedom consists in being a slave to putting others' interests above your own interests. We express our liberty, he says, by loving others. Liberating freedom equals loving service. Now, we're going to talk about that a lot more in the next couple of weeks as we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So come back. We're going to look more about the practical details of what what it looks like to love your neighbor and how do we do that? How do we change? But for now, I think it's important just to note how not just Paul here, but how the New Testament and the Old Testament generally define love. How they define true love and how countercultural it is. The New Testament everywhere says that true love is not primarily, notice I'm not saying it's not at all, but I am saying it's not primarily emotive. It's not primarily feelings-oriented, although that is a factor in true love. So you guys that hate showing your feelings, don't hear me saying it's okay for me to never show my feelings and never be emotional and still I can love others. That's not necessarily true either. But that's not the primary force of the meaning of love in the Bible. It's not primarily feelings-oriented. It's primarily service-oriented. You know, most of the time our culture gets this very, very wrongly. And you can see that in any sort of film or media. But there's one movie that I've referenced before to make this exact point, because I love this movie, um, that gets it right. And the movie is The Princess Bride. Uh, Most of you have probably seen it. It's part of sort of the Christian subculture, for better or for worse. It is. But it's a great movie, and the way they get true love right is in the beginning. Remember Wesley, who's the servant boy of this young lady out on the farm, um, just falls for her hard. He, he falls in love with her. He loves this girl. He, he dotes on her. He, you know, and normally, normally in a film that's expressing what our culture believes, you, you would just see some sentimentality. You would see some romantic words. But that's not what you see in The Princess Bride. You see him serving her. Before she even knows that he loves her, you see him doing anything she needs, anything she wants. You see him saying to her again and again and again, as you wish, right? Anytime he asks, she asks him to do something, as you wish. It's my, my duty to serve, not just my duty to serve you, but my, my joy to serve you. I love you. It's a, it's a great example of what true love is. It's, it's service-oriented. It's other-centered. And Paul's saying that when you get Christian freedom, when you understand the liberty that the gospel brings, that will start showing up more in your life. Is it? So think about your relationships. Think about your relationship with your closest neighbors. By the way, that's the people that live in your house. Um, Your spouse, your children, your parents. How are you serving them? How are you expressing your belief in the freedom you have in Christ through love towards that person. You dads with little kids and with busy wives, when you come home after a long day of work and you're tired and you had a conversation or a business meeting that probably didn't go as well as you were hoping and you're frustrated and you've been on the phone or in meetings all day and you walk in your house, it's late and things are crazy at your house, your wife's trying to get dinner on the table, your kids are going nuts, how do you respond? You say, hand me a beer, I gotta watch some football. Or you see where you can serve. You wives who have busy days and busy kids, and a lot going on, who are not sleeping, who feel overwhelmed. 
How are you looking at your husband and thinking, how can I serve him rather than thinking he's just another hindrance to me accomplishing all the things I need to get done this week? You young people who are still living with your parents, when your parents ask you to do something that you might not agree with, how are you expressing your love to them through service? Are you simply doing it because they're your parents? Or are you respectfully and lovingly asking for some reasoning and seeking to have a conversation with them about that? Or are you slaying them in your mind? How are you loving your closest neighbors? Do you get the gospel? Is it showing up in that way? How are you loving your, your literal neighbors, the people that live next door to you, the people in your neighborhood? Do they know you're a Christian? And do they know you're a Christian because you have some K-Love bumper sticker and you wear a Christian t-shirt or because you serve them? How are you loving neighbors that are very, very different than you and maybe even hostile to you as a Christian? Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, those of you who are believers, we're going to have more and more and more opportunity to love those sorts of people because the culture is only growing more and more hostile to us. Are you loving those who are different with you or judging them? Are you acting like a Pharisee in the way you treat other people, the homosexual community, uh, different races, different social classes? Do you love them? And do they know it? I listened to a great story. Actually, I read this. Great story recently uh, by a guy named Andy Stanley. He's a pastor of a really, really big church in Atlanta. Um, and his dad's Charles Stanley, who was the pastor of First Baptist Atlanta for years. And he tells about a story about when he was feeling led to plant this new church that's now North Point Church. And it was one day um, when he was still on staff at First Baptist Church Atlanta. And old First Baptist Church of Atlanta is in downtown Atlanta, right there on Peachtree Street. And on this particular Sunday, the Gay Pride Parade was being held in downtown Atlanta. And that whole community was going to march right by the front doors of First Baptist Church right at about noon when church is just getting out. And so the staff of First Baptist Atlanta figured this out and they decided that the best way to deal with it was to get out of church 30 minutes early so that they don't have to deal with this at all, so that it doesn't, doesn't create any issues, that there's not any sort of weird or uncomfortable or awkward situations. And so what they did was say, we're going to get out at 1130. And you know, that hardly ever happens in a church when they say we're going to get out early. Usually that doesn't happen. But miracle of miracles, that happened. They got out early, but guess what? The gay pride party had started 30 minutes early. And so right when they get out, they're coming out and the gay pride community's walking down the street and Andy Stanley noticed a lot of the people in his church just giving sort of disgusted looks, maybe even saying some rude things, um, trying to avoid any interaction with these people at all costs. And granted, this would be tough for all of us who have been Christians for a while. Um, and then he noticed across the street, uh, the, quote, liberal church had signs up that says Jesus loves you and we're handing out water. And he says at that moment, he thought something is wrong here. Uh, not to justify everything the liberal church does. It's not what I'm doing. But I think the point stands. Are you saying by what you do with people that are hostile to you and people that you don't agree with that you believe the gospel? Paul says that that's what true Christian freedom is about. It's not about indulging the flesh. It's not about exploiting your neighbor. And thirdly, he tells us, finally, it's not freedom. Christian freedom is not freedom to ignore the law. Look at verse 14 there again. The whole law, all of it, the whole Mosaic code 
is fulfilled. Very important verb there. Is fulfilled in one word or one commandment. The same commandment Jesus gave, by the way, along with love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 there. Now this is a really interesting thing. Stay with me. Here's why it's interesting. Throughout Galatians, Paul has been extremely hard on the law, hasn't he? You might also almost say Paul's been anti-law so far in Galatians. Uh, It would be easy in a sense to hear Paul and to think what the Judaizers thought and what some of the licentious people in Galatians thought. This guy doesn't give a rip about the law. It doesn't matter what the law says, but that's not what he thinks. And that's not what he says. Here he says, actually, I care a great deal about the law. And I care about the law being fulfilled. And here's how it's done. It's done through love. So Christian freedom, he says, is not about ignoring the law. It's rather about fulfilling the law by loving others in the Spirit. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the law can produce love. But he's saying, in a sense, the law is the way of love. The Spirit Through the gospel produces love, and the law shows us how to love. That's why Paul can say the whole law is fulfilled in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, there's some great irony here, as I thought about this a little bit. Here's the irony. Remember the first two ways, the way of legalism and the way of license? You know, those seem to be separate ways, but really those ways are always together. Here's what I mean. Remember the issue in Galatians is legalism. These people think we need to be circumcised and obey the law in order to be justified, in order to be a part of the church. These things have to be done. They're struggling with legalism, with adding to the law, with the idea that obedience brings freedom. But they're also struggling with license. And that's exactly the way it always is. People that seem to care deeply about the letter of the law externally generally don't give a rip about the spirit of the law internally. That's why he says you're biting and devouring one another. Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. That's why he talks in the very next text about the works of the flesh that are evident among them. And so the irony is the people that seem to care the most about the law, the people that say you must be circumcised, you must do this in order for God to love you. You must do this in order to be a part of our community. Really, when they're by themselves, don't obey the law at all. And really, when they're with others, don't obey the law at all because they hate others. They're sanctimonious and arrogant and abrasive and hard to be around. Why do you think so many people dislike the church? That might be the main reason. It's because as we struggle with legalism, we also struggle with license. As we say you must do this to be a part of it, we go and do this, which God hates. It's always always the case. You know, and that's, that's the way it's always going to be with you too, friend. Until you get the gospel, you're going to be like a ping pong ball, getting batted back and forth. One side of the table is legalism and the other side of the table is license. And it's like, you know, those world-class Chinese ping pong players that stand 10 feet away from the table and the ball's going so fast you can't even see it. That's your life. You're waffling and going here. Here you're legalistic. Here you say, I've got to do this in order for God to really love me. If only I could do a little bit better here. But here you can't obey the law. You're sinning. You love your sin. You're condoning sin. You don't love others. You love yourself. And you're just a mess. And the reason you're a mess is because neither one of those roads is the answer. They both lead to death. 
and they both lead to slavery. The answer Paul gives in verse 16, the answer not just to fighting legalism, but the answer to fighting license, to fighting sin, is to walk by the Spirit, to believe the gospel, to rest in Jesus. Let me close with this. Look at what he says there at the very end, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit and... Here's the very, very important thing. He doesn't say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is not a command. He doesn't say, walk by the Spirit and by the way, don't you dare gratify the demands of the flesh, desires of the flesh. No, he says, walk by the Spirit and instead of giving a command, what does he do? Look at the text. He gives a promise. Walk by the Spirit, not the way of legalism, not the way of license, the way of the Spirit, the way of love, and then you will. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The way to fight sin, the way to grow is to walk in the Spirit. We're going to talk a lot again in the next couple of weeks about what that looks like, but for the final point here, what I want you to get is that the ethical emphases of the law can only be satisfied by walking in the Spirit. That's what is promised for us there. If you believe in the gospel, if you walk in the Spirit, you will, you will not, over time, gratify the desires of the flesh. You will grow. You will be changed. Your life will look different. And that's where true Christian obedience, true love for the law, true life change is found. It's found in life in Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit, He, he opens up and allows for new life in Christ to spread, to spread through the life of the believer. Lance Armstrong has been in the news lately. He's a Texan. Shameful, shameful thing. Uh, for those of you who don't know Lance Armstrong, he was a world-class uh, cyclist who won, I think, seven or eight Tour de France uh, titles. And for years and years, all of his associates were sort of uh, getting busted for doping, for using drugs to enhance their performance. And for years and years, Lance Armstrong has been, um, it's been speculated that perhaps he was also guilty. And for years and years and years, he has very, very ardently denied any doping, any illegal activity. And he's done that, frankly, in a very sanctimonious and not winsome manner in a way that has, all, has really alienated a lot of people just in that. And in the last few months, it's come out, total proof has come out that he, in fact, did dope. And not only did he do that, but he was the ringleader of this, probably the most complex doping scheme, the most complex scandal of drug use in the history of team sports. And so recently, he went on Oprah. Some of you probably know this. It's interesting that he went on Oprah. That's another sermon. But he went on Oprah and decided to confess and to deal with some of his issues. And as I was preparing to watch a little bit of that, I was thinking about this sermon, and I thought at the same time, you know, Lance Armstrong is a great example of how we at the same time struggle against legalism and license, right? He's saying, I've never done that. How dare you accuse me of that? These are the people that did it. He's very sanctimonious. He's very arrogant all the while. He's completely caught up in this nasty, nasty cheating scandal. He's full of licentiousness and he's full of legalism. And the only thing that's going to solve that conundrum is for him to come clean, for him to confess 
Now, we can talk a lot about whether or not his confession was legitimate and why he did it, but it does point us, point us who are hearing about Jesus tonight to the only way forward. It's to walk by the Spirit, which means repenting of your sin and believing the gospel. Is that what you're doing? If it is, you will see life change over time. If it's not, you will see frustration. We're going to talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray for now. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. We do love your law, as the psalmist says. We don't love it because it can save us. No, it cannot save us. It shows us our need for salvation. We don't love it because by our obedience of it, we can lord ourselves over others. Oh, Father, it does not do that for us. Rather, it humbles us. But we do love it because it shows us the way to love others. And we pray that by the Spirit's working, we would use our freedom in Christ, our identity in Christ, our belief in the gospel, not to indulge fleshly appetites, not to ignore the law, not to exploit our neighbor, but to fulfill the law through that one command, loving you with all of our hearts and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We need your help to do that. So will you please help us? And as we come to the table now, use these means of grace to do just that in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.